Now, you follow as I read a portion of God's Word. It's from the book of Romans, chapter 4. It begins in verse 13. I'll read only three verses, and they read like this. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Guys, the Apostle Paul is a master logician. You know what that is? I I didn't say magician, but logician. He's He's skilled in logic. And you see that throughout the whole book of Romans, but you see it quite clearly in Romans chapter 4. He is reasoning. He is reasoning with his audience, which he knows contains numerous Jewish listeners. He um, He is arguing without having reply because he is, it's called an ad hominem argument. He is anticipating arguments that his audience will have and answering them before they ask them. In these three verses in Romans 4, Paul moves on to an issue that he knows will be in the minds of his Jewish listeners. Um, It has to do, the issue has to do with the law. Now, he's already addressed the other biggie. And that was two weeks ago uh, here. But in this text, he is reasoning with his audience, but he's already addressed the other biggie, and that was circumcision. That's already been addressed. Now, that done, he moves on to the thing that he knows will be the next obstacle or barrier to his Jewish listeners to this message, gospel message that he has. And it has to do with the law. What role does the law play? That, of course, was huge in the minds of of Judaism, still is. And so what you're going to see take place is Paul reasoning through that. Let me show you what I mean. The first piece of his life, let let me back up. Guys, you realize, I think, that the book of Romans is nothing more than an extensive rewrite of the book of Galatians. Did you know that? Galatians contains the same issues, or most of the same issues, than the book of Romans, But Paul, when he had more time, expands what he says in Galatians and sends it to Rome. Okay? So much of the argument that you find in Romans, you're going to find in the book of Galatians, or in the book of Galatians, you're going to find it in Romans. Okay. So we come to this issue of law. 
Does law save me? <laughs> First century Judaism said it did. And, and not only that, <laughs> 21st century Judaism says that it does. So Paul begins his argument. And the first part of his logic, I, I'm really borrowing from the book of Galatians. Because it's alluded to in this text, but it, the, the details, more of the details are given in the book of Galatians chapter 3. But here's his first piece of logic. Ladies and gentlemen, he says, how could your great hero, Abraham, the, the, the very founder of Judaism, how could he have been justified by the law when the law wasn't even around when Abraham lived. It didn't come into existence, <coughs> pardon me, for another 430 years. Now, think about that, 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 that time period. Uh, imagine we were to calculate it today and we were to move back from 2021, 430 years. That would place us somewhere around 1590. You know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. So about 100 years after Columbus uh, landed in the West Indies, um, until now. Which would mean that all those people in that time period, you know, long before the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, Korean War, all that, all those people in that period back in the Old Testament had no access to the thing that Judaism said saved them. Those people were doomed because they didn't even have access to the device that Judaism promoted and promotes as the method by which people are to be justified or saved. So the promise made to Abraham about him being the heir of all the earth, or his, it's, he was going to have heirs, um, that promise preceded the law by 430 years. So Abraham was certainly not saved by the law. It didn't even exist. So again, says Paul, how was Abraham justified or saved? Something that he's already said four times in the previous 12 verses, he says it again in verse 13. Through the righteousness of of faith. Folks, Abraham was not told that he was going to be a blessing to all the world based on his studious and punctilious observance of the demands of the law. It wasn't even in existence. You know, folks, had I been the speaker that day and I was the one, you know, speaking to this audience, I would have said it something like this. I would have said, Folks, 
You cannot believe that Abraham was saved by his punctilious observance of the law. It wasn't even in existence, you idiots. And I would have been wrong and have sinned and would have probably been fired. Um, But the point is, it's so glaringly obvious. How could you miss it? It wasn't even in existence. And you're saying that Abraham and all of everybody else is saved by obeying the Ten Commandments? He didn't even know what the Ten Commandments were. Okay. Isn't that enough to prove Paul's point? I mean, hasn't he already won the debate? Well, apparently not. Because he continues to give you a second piece of logic. He makes allusion in verse 13 to the promise to Abraham. You see it? Uh, And the promise had to do with his offspring that were going to be the heir of the world. Now, Paul is making reference to a piece of Jewish history that they all knew. That's well-known Jewish history right there, folks. Yes, sir, Bob. They knew about that. And where do you find that? Well, you find it in Genesis 15. And you might want to take a look at it. I'm going to read a little bit of it for you. But what do you find in Genesis 15? Well, folks, this is what you got. You've got a conversation. A conversation that is going on between God and Abraham. And Abraham starts the conversation by saying, listen, how am I going to be, you know, how's this going to work since I don't have any offspring? And the nearest thing to an offspring I've got in my home is a guy by the name of Eliezer. That's what Abraham says. And then God replies in verse 4. This is Genesis 15, 4. This man, that is Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he, that is God, brought him, Abraham, outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then God said to Abraham, So shall your offspring be. Now, folks, there's the promise. Um, Abraham replies to that promise in verse 6. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Folks, that's the conversation that God and Abraham have, where God gives to Abraham a promise about his heirs. But if I could paraphrase that conversation and put it more in, in first century Jewish logic, I guess, the, the conversation would go something like this. Abraham, I'm going to give you a son and I'm going to give you scads of descendants if you will obey the Ten Commandments. And Abraham says, will God, what are the Ten Commandments? And God says, oh, right, I I haven't even given you those things yet, have I? 
Folks, the promise that is found in Genesis 15 is not couched in the language of human performance. God takes him outside on a clear night, tells him to start counting the stars, and he's up to 16,444,000. And God says to him, you're going to have descendants equal to the number of stars out there. And then once God has made that promise, according to Judaism, this is how Abraham replies. Oh, God, that's really exciting. And, and whatever those Ten Commandments are, I mean, if you, you can count on me uh, to obey them. And, and, and the sooner I get them, the, the, uh, the more uh, obedience that I can offer to you. Folks, it's downright ludicrous. It's illogical. And that's what Paul is doing with his audience because they know Abraham's reply to the promise was he believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Didn't have anything in there about obedience to anything. Folks, when God makes this promise in Genesis 15, he doesn't lay down any conditions that had to be met by Abraham so that the promise could be fulfilled. Not one condition. Not you got to be baptized or circumcised. Not that you got to obey the Ten Commandments. It was a promise of sheer sovereign grace. In fact, if one's standing with God is based on one's performance, then if you'll notice what the text says, the text says if that were true, then what you've done with your performance is that you have rendered the promise null and void. That's what's said in verse 14. For if it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null, and the promise is void. Human merit works are opposed to faith. Guys, those two things are antithetical. It's either one or the other. Everyone in this room at this very moment is doing one or the other. 
you are either trying to impress God with all of your goodness so that he will accept you on the basis of your goodness or you are resting in the promises that righteousness comes through faith and that faith in Christ. Because you see, human performance voids the promise. The promise voids any assertion that you might make that you're a good person. One or the other. Now guys, there's a third piece of logic in the text. But this piece of logic takes us off into another direction. Because up to this point, Paul has been refuting what Judaism says about law-keeping. But in this last verse, in verse 15, he is now establishing one of the appropriate and proper uses of the law. And I would suggest it's probably the most proper and the most helpful usage of the law. Notice what he says in verse 15. He says, For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Folks, law doesn't bring life. It doesn't impart life. In fact, it brings wrath. How? How does that happen? How does the law bring wrath? Well, let, me, let me explain. First of all, folks, the law produces a standard by which men are then measured. The law, you see, exposes my violations of it. It makes conspicuous my failings to keep it. It the law, you see, defines sin clearly. No guesswork. L let me try to illustrate with an illustration that I think I've used before. But let's imagine that the legislature in the state of Tennessee, up there in Nashville, they decide that speed laws in the state are oppressive. You know, we want to be more like Germany and the Autobahn. So they make a law that means that all speed limits are abolished. All the speed signs are taken down on the interstate and on roads and highways. There's no laws to govern how fast one drives. Okay, if that were so, tomorrow morning when those laws come into effect, or when that, those, those laws are abolished, how fast could you drive? Well, I could drive as fast as I want to. And you could. Because there's no laws. But then about three or four hours into this new law, the legislature realizes, oh my goodness, what a mistake we have made. This has created chaos on our streets. 
So they rescind that law and they tell the state, the, the residents of the state, that the laws are going back up tomorrow morning. So sure enough, all those speed limit signs go back up. So like right out here in front of the church, the speed limit is 40 miles an hour. But you drive at 48 miles per hour. You know what that makes you? It makes you a law breaker. Because once the law goes up, sin or violations in essence come into being. There is a sense, ladies and gentlemen, in which the law creates sin. Because once it's established, it provides this, this standard by which my behavior is to be measured. Take it down. As the text says, where there's no law, there's no transgression. But if there's law, then my failure to keep it makes me guilty. Folks, I have been in the gospel ministry 45 years or so. I don't know whether you're supposed to count seminary too, because that would make it 48. But I can't tell you the number of times people have tried to tell me why their adultery is, is okay. Why, Dr. Young? My wife doesn't love me. Hmm, sorry to hear that. Ah, Dr. Young, you know that God wants everybody to be happy. No, I didn't know that, but... Um, and um, Dr. Young, my wife and I, we have an arrangement. I've been told all those things. I'm very sorry, but once the law said, you shall not commit adultery, and if you commit adultery, you are no matter what kind of rationalizations you may want to offer. Because you see, that's what the law does. Once it gets established, it then defines my sin. Folks, That's the role that the law is supposed to play. 
Gang, the only people who really want this Savior of ours, the Lord Jesus, are the ones who have been exposed by the law. They know they're guilty. They know that they stand before, their stance before God is ruined and that they are deserving of wrath. Guys, once you've seen your true standing as illustrated in living color by the law, then to hear of Christ crucified, that is good news. That is a balm for my soul. Guys, law drives us to grace. Law drives us to Christ. Law doesn't save. It has never saved anyone in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It was never intended to be a saving device. Never, ever. Never did God give it to Moses at Sinai so that men might observe it so that they might be reconciled to God. It was never intended to be that. How did it become that? Because men want to be their own saviors. They want to save themselves without some kind of reliance upon a Savior. Law never saved anyone. But it does drive us to the one who does save. Christ Jesus. You know, folks, in the language of the book of Galatians, You'll find in Galatians 4 that, that the law is called a tutor. It's a coach. It takes me by the hand. It shows me my sin. And then it takes me further on to see the beauties of Christ and Him crucified. When the law does that, the law is glorious. The law is the thing that showed me that what I was trusting in would only bring wrath. But if you use the law as a means to save you. It will damn you. Because the law 
brings wrath to those who think that it will bring life. It won't. Our Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for the glories, that the truths that are contained in it that make it so clear about how you saved Abraham and how you saved Billy Graham and how you save us. It is through the righteousness of faith, not obedience to the law. Make that abundantly clear to everyone who's in this room. Might no one leave here thinking that their performance is so good that you will accept them on the basis of their performance. The only performance that is good is the performance of the Savior that you sent. And we who have tasted of the richness of His, of the gospel, cling on to Christ and Him crucified and that only. Might others who have come here this morning who are Christians in name only, might they see what they need most? It's not church membership. What they need is a Savior. Show them that, Lord, for your own glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.